The views and opinions expressed by guests on Connected do not necessarily reflect those of Side Street Studio Arts. And welcome to Connected. This is the podcast from Side Street Studio Arts, where we talk to members of the arts community, performance, visual, all of the bits, um, and find out the uh, gory details of what makes them do what they do. My name is Erin Rayberg, and I am one of the founders and executive directors of Side Street Studio Arts. And today I'm joined by Rachel Elizabeth Maley. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We're, you know what? Like right now, I'm gonna take a selfie of us because we are like in the space with microphones, double masking, being safe, but being together. And that's really nice and refreshing and new. I haven't done one of these podcasts in person yet. Really? This is the first one? First one! Oh my gosh. <laughs> and look, I'm already doing it wrong. I'm moving my chair while we go. Um, I like to say a person's title when I introduce them. What's your title? Queen, <laughs> Queen Rachel. Oh my gosh. That's actually, who knows? But right now, right now I'm the owner of Still Life Meditation, which is Elgin's first meditation center right down here on Grove Avenue. And um, I do a lot of other stuff but generally just artist is fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, brave and scary. It took me a long time to grab that title and keep it in my pocket and be able to say it without, I don't know, fear is the right word, but trepidation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like to start off with people's Elgin story. What's, what, are you, what are you doing here? How'd you wind <laughs> up in Elgin? Why are you here? What's going on? <laughs> um, I grew up in Aurora and I had never heard of Elgin until one of my friends who is also a musician like I am, she recruited me to come audition for the Elgin Youth Symphony Orchestra. And this was when I was a junior in high school. And so I think that was that night that I auditioned was probably the first time I'd ever even been to Elgin. <laughs> and I just went straight to the community college and I got into the orchestra and later worked for the orchestra as a staff member after I had graduated. And then I started getting involved at Side Street as an artist in residence. And it was around that time that I decided to move down here into the art space lofts. And since then I've moved nearby to Hoffman Estates with my partner and just kind of never left. <laughs> so when I decided that I wanted to, or when I realized that it was time for me to do something new, like opening my own place, whatever that was, downtown Elgin was like an obvious choice. It just has such a unique energy and weird community. <laughs> and um, I, I love it here. Growing up as a musician, um, was that your world growing up? Were your friends the musicians? And, you know, were you enmeshed in the arts being music at that time? Yeah, definitely. Um, my, both my families, my mom's and my dad's, are full of musicians, except for my mom and my dad. They're not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it skipped them. Um, but my, you know, on my dad's side, it's a half Mexican family and the family gatherings are huge and lots, you know, just like very loud. <laughs> and 
my grandma actually was a lounge pianist in Aurora <laughs> when she moved here from Texas. So um, that's actually how she met my grandfather because he would leave his job and go to the bars in downtown Aurora and see her. And then um, on my mom's side, uh, they're from the Philippines and uh, my great-grandfather was like a band director and all like all of these things and so like there was just a lot of music in the family and so that was something that our parents valued and like respected which I say because I do I do know several people who like their parents would not let them go to school for mm -hmm. the arts and stuff like that so when we were kids like right away we got involved in the Suzuki violin program and like I specifically remember because I'm the youngest of three kids that I was upset because I couldn't start playing like right when my older mm -hmm. siblings did. Like I was like, oh, look, there, there are five year olds here, you know, and I was like, <laughs> and they wouldn't let me start yet because of whatever the requirements of the program. But that was like that was my whole world for sure. Like I started on violin, I switched to piano and I was in the bands and the orchestras and, you know, I never did <laughs> any sports or anything else. <laughs> Um, so it was, it, it definitely like from the very beginning was like, this is the thing we, you kind of mentioned it, but we talk about it within our Latino outreach program too, that there are a lot of families that heading into a, a focus like that in the arts, whether it be music or otherwise can, it can be frowned upon. And so you kind of mentioned that that was special. What, what is it, of you know, about that, that, that families are trying to find that balance or that your family was okay with that, you know? Yeah, I guess we were kind of unique in that we did have people in our family who made careers mm. of music. So and there was evidence. There was evidence that this had... Right, exactly. And like, um, like my, my dad is Mexican and Irish. My grandma or my mom is Filipina and they're all uh, typically Catholic, uh, you know, families and races and so forth and so like playing music for the church like that was a totally legitimate mm -hmm. career mm -hmm. you know um my grandma said was a lounge pianist you know, like everyone like it was it was obvious that it was a legitimate choice that someone could make I think a lot of families don't see that because especially like our perception of musicians like as a career is like pop star yeah. right yeah and so things like you know, I did, I worked uh, for Lyric Opera for a little while, things like administrative work, like everyone at Lyric Opera in the fundraising department used, like, used to play music right. or could still played music, like right. stuff like that. Like people don't really see how that experience tracks into other situations. And me now, like being a business owner and working in other sort of industries and, um, and tasks and so forth, like I see all the time how arts education was like, oh, that's that's where I learned this skill. That's where I learned how to create a rate sheet or like balance my books and stuff like that, you know, because I started playing, you know, professionally, so to speak, when I was like 15. Mm -hmm. So it's I mean, I had a lot of experience behind me. Mm -hmm. And so that when we're talking about legitimate career, that means you can feed and shelter yourself. Right. And make money and. um uh, be respected. Is is that what we're talking about? I think yes. It's not. It's almost never easy to do that. No, it's very black and white, right? Right. It's like <laughs> salary, boom. Right. Um. But like, I think that 
there are asp like when people think about becoming a professional musician, for instance, all they think about is performing. And first of all, like anyone knows, like you know that being an artist who creates an art business, you don't make a lot of art, <laughs> right? Like you yep. don't get to spend a lot of time on that. But all of those other things are part of an arts career. And so, for instance, working in something like fundraising or production or whatever it is, like that's a legitimate musical career. And someone who comes from a finance background or you know, an administrative background, whatever it is, they're not gonna be able to do that job as well as someone who understands really why, why we're here doing this. And I remember there was, um, <laughs> there was a time that I was, I was interviewing for another job with a, a large organi arts organization in Chicago. And the first question, this was the president of this organization. The first question he asked me was, why do you think orchestras are still relevant? And I think that that's like, that just taught me a lot about him, you know, and about why they do this work. And it's like, those are the things that you really glean from having that experience. So yes, like your kids being an orchestra, they're gonna get good SAT scores, you know, like all the studies say. Right, right. But there's a lot of other things that you learn from that experience and that you're able to do because your, your mind has been open to that. We talk about that a lot around here. I write most of our grants and it would be lovely to have that taken off my plate and hire a professional grant writer, whatever that is. And every time we talk about it and think about trying to teach someone what side street is in order to be able to write effectively and passionately about it, who comes from a professional fundraising background or whatever, makes me want to die. I'm <laughs> like, I, no, no one is going to feel more passionate and have the knowledge about it than I am. So maybe this is just a part of my gig, you know, for eternity as part of Side Street. Um, because I, I just can't picture someone walking in having not had arts experience or this specific arts experience and then trying to make us money for that, you know? Right. And that's, I mean, like, that's not to say that, you know, like you have to be an artsy kid to get anything right. out of it. Right. But there is an understanding and a value proposition from actually having like put up a show, you know, yeah. or something yeah. like that, that doesn't just translate into arts work. It translates into shipping a new product yeah or you know pulling a team together like it's these are all skills that kids learn playing their violin you know <laughs> you you are my fourth conversation <laughs> you make me think so I've talked to Dr. Risa Jones I've talked to Eric um ESO executive director I've talked to Amanda Harris city of Elgin um, and all of them, <laughs> you know, like it, the conversation within five minutes is like, it's not just about this one hat. You know, we talk <laughs> about hats. It's so silly, but all of these people have 50 different hats and um, these hugely creative sides and histories and educations and then work in 25 fields surrounding that. Yeah. And I think that like that is really the prospect of like, for instance, studying music and then going into administration, like that's really off-putting for a <laughs> lot of young people, mm -hmm. right? Because all you ever want to do is play your instrument, right? Mm -hmm. And I know like in EYSO, a huge number of those students are going to conservatories, mm -hmm. like they are studying performance. And so the, the idea of doing something outside of just playing can be very like, 
blah, <laughs> you know? But like so much of music education is performance centered. And when we say, okay, what, what else is the richness of this experience? Not so that I can get a good grade on this technical execution, but so that I can share it with other people, so that I can educate other people, so that I can change policy, like whatever it is, like those are what allow 13 year olds to dream about going to Juilliard. <laughs> you know, like those yeah. are the things that create that whole landscape. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned you are all, all music, no sports, et cetera. You know, and I, I grew up dancing, but also in sports and, and those sorts of things. And I see a lot of the people I grew up with or even my students now who are all dance and then going to go to school for dance and dance and then it goes away and those other opportunities aren't necessarily as there because of that singular focus for better or worse, right? And so and maybe it's not that the opportunities aren't there, it's the ability to see the opportunities because I've called myself a dancer. We're just saying, I, I didn't call myself an artist, I called myself a dancer and a choreographer for right. a long time because of that kind of tunnel vision. Um, so at that early age, when you're EYSOing and, and all of that, you know, are, are you having that tunnel vision? Is there balance there? Um, what, what does that life look like? Are you going to be a professional musician when you grow up? Oh gosh. I went back and forth so many times because, uh, like performance always really made me, uh, anxious and it wasn't so much, and it still does FYI. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't so much that, uh, like performing itself was difficult, but being like an overachiever as a kid, like I was just so obsessed with perfection in everything, mm -hmm. you know? And so the prospect of <laughs> doing that like every day for my life, like trying to just be better and better, better and, and living in that mindset of like, you're not good enough yet. Mm -hmm. That was really scary for me. Um, at various times I wanted to study voice, French horn, which is what I played in the orchestra. I wanted to study piano. Um, I wanted to get into uh, like cognitive science and music and so forth. And so there were a lot of different ways that I considered doing that. And um, eventually when I did decide like what school I was going to, um, it was because like I just wanted to play music all day. And I actually, <laughs> I actually remember the day because I had, it was like about time to choose your college. And I had a few opportunities, a few rejections. And I had done, we, we call them school day tours at EYSO, where one of the chamber ensembles goes to different schools and we play for them and we talk about EYSO and whatever. And I came home from one of those tours and I said, I want to do music. You know, like that's what I really want to do. And um, I, I think there were a lot of things that I could see myself doing. I loved chemistry, I still do. I loved my chemistry teacher, I loved history, like all of these things that I really enjoyed. But I think, you know, just the fact that I had been doing it for 15 or 18 years, it was like, that was really what's still built into me. And I still play piano, you know, every day of my life. Like, it's just a thing that comes. It's, it's practice, <laughs> as we would say. Mm -hmm. So, the Elgin Youth Symphony Orchestra was real, a real important, significant part of who you were then and, and frankly, still who you are now, you know, all yeah. that, all that music. How, 
was your time there? What was that like? What did you do? What is the Elgin Youth Symphony <laughs> Orchestra? The, a lot of people don't know about the Elgin Youth Symphony Orchestra because like Elgin is just like, you know, Elgin's not on a lot of people's map. There's mm -hmm. the Chicago Youth Symphony and then there's stuff around like you well, I've never heard of the Chicago Youth Symphony. <laughs> well, I pretend <laughs> that I've never heard of them. <laughs> so, um, the Elgin Youth Symphony Orchestra is essentially a performing ensemble uh, for students, and I don't know what the current grade range is, but students probably, I'm guessing, you'd have to double check on me, like age eight through college. And they'd have a number of full orchestras and a number of different um, you know, ensembles and performing opportunities, chamber music, et cetera. And um, I joined, I really like, a lot of people say this when they join, and I know this because I was on staff with them for a while. A lot of people say, I wish I had heard about this sooner. Mm. For kids who play wind instruments like I did, I played French horn, you know, you don't learn as young as kids who play string instruments because kids, like I started playing violin when I was five, and that's because you can make tiny violins. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't make super small trombones. Oh, how cute would that be? <laughs> I would love to see that. But your tiny, <laughs> tiny lungs can't really play the tuba yet. So, <laughs> so wind players just start later. And so I joined when I was a junior. And I played junior, senior, and uh, my gap year after high school. And my teacher there, uh, Randy Swigum, who's no longer the artistic director, he was really, he's one of those teachers, you know, who is just um, obsessed, completely obsessed with how music works, how mm. kids work. Like, he, I mean, like, it, it, incredibly frustrating to work with because <laughs> he, you'll, set, you'll write out a paragraph of text and he's like, what about this particular word? Like, is that the word we want to use to describe this? Really incredible guy who taught me um, how to think, <laughs> you know, in, in a big way. And so that was one of, the, definitely, as you said, one of the reasons that, like, I thought music is the thing for me. And I don't necessarily think music is the thing for me, I don't necessarily think that there's one thing, mm. but the way that we learned to think in that program, which is actually a framework that's taught, it's called Comprehensive Musicianship Through Performance, CMP. The way that we learn to think about things in that program, really, I come back to it in everything that I do. So it was really, it was one of those things that was like, you know, I didn't really love my high school program. And then when my friend, <laughs> Teresa Go, who's a violist, and a uh, music teacher in the area now, when she invited me in, I had no idea like how powerful this was. And so I, you know, I think about it often. And uh, you know, I still like send Randy my, <laughs> my ideas on a Sunday night. I'm like, oh, I was thinking about this, you know, whatever random thing. And, and he really has that, uh, that passion and that love of an obsession with the, the way that minds work. What was it about him in particular or the method in general that still sticks with you, that you know, allowed you to grow, but also is still a part of your world? One of the things about comprehensive musicianship through performance is that what we called it was, the, the object is to educate the whole musician, the whole musician. So knowing that performance is only one possible outcome of playing music, right? de-emphasizing the concert as, you know, the ultimate goal 
the rehearsal and the time that you spend talking and interpreting and practicing is really the most fruitful time, right? And you know this from choreographing and rehearsing, right? If you spend all your time just trying to get the technique correct, you're missing out on so many other opportunities for understanding, right? And for growth. And so CMP as a model really is just much more thoughtful than any other music educational. I don't want to say any because <laughs> um, there's another really, really incredible model that I'm learning about right now called music learning theory. But CMP as a model for classroom teaching is really unique because I think it just has a lot more respect for the entire process of creative work. Because in schools, right, you're being tested on your technique, your memorization, you're being entered into competitions all the time, getting awards, getting XYZ chair, right, one, two, three, four, and then the ultimate goal is to, at the concert, I'll be frank, prove to the parents that this class is worth it. Absolutely. And so, I mean, <laughs> I used to tell people at EYSO, we don't even really care if we have concerts, <laughs> although it's a really great, important learning experience for kids to have that pressure. Um, but like the meat of it is really the kind of discussions the kind of diagnosis that we do in rehearsals. And that's the stuff that stays with you. You know, like I still remember like whenever we would do a, like a folk song or something, we would learn the words and sing it together. Like stuff like that, that it's just like, you know, sometimes in school choirs, you're singing a song in a foreign language and then you never really, you don't even learn what the text is, you know? So it's, it's just, and I don't want to keep slamming school education, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like the requirements for testing and um, conformity are so unbelievably strangling to actual creative growth. I think that talking about those requirements to conformity or even testing in comparison to what you can see when you go to see any symphony play, right? I'm not thinking, look at that anti-conformist <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. like imperfect, uh, flawed artistry, sort of. I'm looking at a well-oiled machine um, and the idea of those two dynamics existing simultaneously is not something I think many of us think about when we see in particular classical music or a traditional symphony, even a youth symphony performing. Yeah, it's, I mean, the classical music world in particular is such a dinosaur. <laughs> Like, if I'm going to be honest, change happens at such a glacial pace. And even things, things that I feel no patience for anymore, like performers walking off and back on to get the ovations, I'm like, that's not why I'm here. <laughs> so I am very much sort of an anti-establishment <laughs> classical musician, I guess. But like those are standards that we uphold, like the standards of perfection, of technical excellence, of formality. Um, those are standards that we as an audience uphold. And we have to direct our attention and our money towards things that are willing to explore something beyond that. I'm not saying that everything has to change, but even things like 
locations, right? Like performing venues, right? You and I produced a concert outdoors on the street last fall. You know, like things like that, that we, we all can relax and say, what am I actually getting out of this experience? Like, if you want to dress up and feel fancy, like, that is a totally legitimate reason to go to the symphony. Like, that's, I've seen people at Lyric Opera in the $300 seats falling asleep. Like, it's, it's whatever you wanted to get out of that. But I think that there's more to be had if we are willing to shake off some of these things that are about formality in particular. Now, that's not to say that, like, technical ex excellence is not impressive or valuable, you know? A lot of times when people say, you know, we're not focused on the performance or we're not, we're not here just to drill scales, that's not saying like it's okay to be sloppy and then call yourself an expert, right? But it's to say, what is the value of this? And education and performance are two completely different things, completely different. This is why so many performing musicians are bad teachers because they're just a completely different yeah. skill set. So when you say in education, you know, my emphasis is not on the performance, that's because your emphasis is on the, on the education. If you're saying in performance, my emphasis is not on formality or whatever it is, you know, these archaic sort of tuxedos and dresses traditions, then that's a separate discussion, right? We talk about those concerts we had in the, was it fall? Was it, in the it was fall? September. Time and space. <laughs> Um, and so we, you know, it was Rachel and two mus two other musicians in the Jones Insurance parking lot in front of Side Street. And as the Side Street person who we've had lots of wonderful chamber music and music performances that um, he, I'm, I'm just saying it in compared to Battle of the Bands, right? In Battle of the Bands, if I hear the train club guys train go around, I'm not stressed about it. <laughs> right but sarah sitzer is playing a beautiful moment on her cello and i hear choo choo <laughs> going around like i clench and get so stressed out about how my space is messing up this performance whether anyone else is thinking about it or not and i'm sure some people are thinking about it right so when we did these performances outside because of covid right and wanting to perform and create opportunity and engagement and all of those sorts of things it took, from my perspective, this layer of preciousness off of it in a really uh, significant way in that if a car alarm was going off down the street, I have no responsibility for that, right? Um, we had, I mean, and we had every noise, like we had jackhammer, like where did a jackhammer I had no from? idea where that construction was happening <laughs> right? at we seven o'clock at night. We had the, ba the beep, beep, the backups. We had, hey, yo, yeah. we had uh, like, like real city living, y'all. <laughs> you know, it was like for realsies, urban setting no control over the humans around and um we talked a little bit about it and I, I would love to hear you tell everyone kind of after the first time we did it you were like now I need to prepare for that but the other part of it was when we did those pre-ticket orders I was like I know that name I know that name I don't I know that name like I know these are area classical music lovers that I have rubbed elbows with because I am an area area classical music lover and chamber music lover right and so I know that they're going to come and come a couple times and some of them did and that's wonderful 
And then people came up and sat on the picnic table and stopped when they were walking by and all of those layers of preciousness and being allowed in the space or the access to the music were removed. Um, and that being the first thing we really did in, in the middle of the COVID crisis, just, I'm getting chills right now <laughs> thinking of it, it just warmed the cockles of my heart to such an extent of, okay, this is why we're here. This is why we all do what we do. Um, and that was in huge part to removing those obstacles and that part, those layers of preciousness. I think preciousness is like the exact perfect word to describe all of this tradition and this formality around classical music in particular, but any live performance, right? Um, it was a really interesting experience to perform outside because I'd never done that before because I'm a piano player and there are rarely pianos outdoors. We could talk about that process. That too. was a hot <laughs> mess of rolling that piano. Um, thank you, Doug Hansen, for like shoving it around with me. Um, <laughs> and so after that first performance, I was really actually very rattled by all of the background noise because I had not, I had mentally said, oh, it's going to be noisy. But just like the sensory overload of me trying to play and noticing those things was a lot. So what I did was I went home and I um, <laughs> I found a Spotify playlist of like Streets of New York sounds. <laughs> and I put my headphones in and played <laughs> the piano and I could barely hear it. And it was honestly like I, I want to do that for every single performance from now on because it's it's a way of knowing what you're doing and not being able to hear it or see it or whatever it is and just knowing and having that confidence to play, that was incredible. Glenn Gould actually did something like that, the pianist. Um, he would put white noise headphones on while he practiced and he couldn't hear anything. Um, amazing. But this, this preciousness aspect of it, like, I think it speaks so, so specifically and so so powerfully to this idea that art belongs somewhere, you know, that this type of art belongs in museums, this type of art belongs in concert halls, this type of art is for this type of person, and it's just, it's just not true, like, it's just, there's no other way to say it, is that, like, that, that sort of gatekeeping aspect, you would say, is, like, it's just so insidious because not only does it keep artists from being able to share, right? This is why every kid who's a classical musician dreams of being in a symphony orchestra because there are no other ways that classical music exists, mm -hmm. right? There's chamber music and a bunch of string quartets you've never heard of, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the kid's like, I don't want to do that. I want to be at symphony center, you know? So not only does it keep people from finding the platforms to share what they do, but it also keeps audiences from exploring things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Like people who, for instance, can't afford opera tickets or don't have formal clothes, they will never go to the Civic Opera House. You know, and that's, it's a shame. <laughs> it's just a shame because there are so many universal themes of opera. There are new young operatic composers working, you know, and, and it's like 
these things are for everyone. And I think that when we admit that, <laughs> like when we artists admit that we should be playing for people who don't get it, who've never seen it before, who might not come back, like they're our audience too. We're not just here for the people who know not to clap in between movements. <laughs> like that's a satisfying experience because that's a shared knowledge. Mm -hmm. But like I want someone there who doesn't know the rules and is then open to the possibility that this could also be for them. So like those random people, <laughs> when the violinists and I were rehearsing, they were just like walking by and they're like, what, what the hell's going on here? You know, like they might not have ever known that Side Street was here. They didn't know that there was a concert that night. They might never have been to a classical music concert in Elgin. Like, that's just one more way to crack into someone's life and say, this could be for you. Like, this could be your thing. And that's what I see, you know, happening at Side Street all the time with the kids programs and the outreach and stuff. It's like, we're here for everyone. It's okay if you don't want to be here for everyone, but everyone could benefit. Shockingly, I agree. Um, <laughs> right. I think no matter your age, no matter your interest level, no matter your background, you get to decide what art is, um, how you can approach it, uh, whether it's bad or good. Right. Just to really oversimplify everything, whether it's something you'll return to or not, um, whether you're brave enough to ask questions about it um, or think further about it. And I think that going back to that kind of linear focus of young artists or even how young artists are led sometimes in down a single path and not getting to veer off or have that exposure to whatever it is that is just different from the mode they are centering their time and space on is just so detrimental. And when you can't find that stuff until... Um, you decide to go to grad school or something like like for me you know when it can really crack you open I I am thrilled when the kids around here crack me open <laughs> you know and that see something in something that I'm like wow you have so much space to process this and you are never given enough credit for all this space you have to make your own decisions and judgments and and all of that and I do think putting things on the street, so to speak, whatever it is, like through clear spaces or open windows or in a parking lot is just integral, 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 <laughs> important <laughs> to offering those various viewpoints time and time and time and time and time again to our entire world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think about this a lot, like myself definitely having like elitist tendencies because like that's just the world that I grew up in. You know, I think a lot about, you know, skilled versus unskilled, trained versus untrained. Like, is this appropriate for this setting? Is this good enough for this setting? And there's like, there's a lot of interesting debate to be had. Like, you know, my brother is also a musician. He and I talk a lot about what's like, quote unquote, good music and bad music, you know, and and he's a jazz musician. And like, you know, nobody likes jazz. Like, <laughs> if I'm being frank, if I'm being frank, like it's such a niche interest at this point in our country that, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of like 
fighting for your thing to have a place on the stage, right? So we talk about that a lot. But like ultimately what it comes down to is that like if you allow yourself to do the thing, you know, if you allow yourself to feel that thing, to experiment, to play, right? When when does any adult ever say I'm going to play with this, right? That's inside you. Like it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, et cetera. Like school you can tell I'm very anti-school. <laughs> school school trains us for obedience and memorization and conformity, right? That's what school does. And that's because it's a model that was invented in the Industrial Revolution to create factory workers. Like, that's that's what school is now. And it still is that way. But if you take a kid and you say, here are some markers, like, they'll come up with something. And if you take an adult and say, here are some markers, they're like, what am I supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's in you and it gets trained out of us. And so even though we can argue a lot about like good and bad, like, you know, valuable and non-valuable art, like that's again, like a capitalist value proposition. Like the bottom line is that there's something in you that can come out. And if you let yourself, then it will, <laughs> you know? And that's why I end up working in like millions of different media all the time because I'm like, well, you know, I no one ever taught me to paint, but I'll give it a try, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Well, and, and speaking strictly on performance and coming from a dance background, now we're talking about body type and skin color and let's not even, socioeconomic is, you know, for right. all of these things we're talking about is, uh, um, heavy but um the physicality of an artist making art whether it be dance you know or music or any performer showing their physicality especially coming from a body that doesn't look like the bodies we're used to seeing over generations of ballerinas or whatever the case may be um again to me adds another layer of significance and importance on why these barriers should be removed to be able to view and participate and engage in in these artistic forms yeah 100 percent. and i think that like i mean it's so obvious especially now there's so much increased awareness around you know issues of race and access and visibility um, you know, we've witnessed a culture change just in the last 12 months, you know, and the the language that we use and the way that we market things. And it's just like the more you not discount, but like set aside your own particular opinions, like me personally about value, good and bad, that type of thing, the more you're willing to leave those to the side for a second and say, why is it that these types of people are not allowed to perform? Why is it that this, like, it has nothing to do with art. None of those things have anything to do with art. Like, <laughs> none of those value thing, value propositions actually exist independent from all these layers of judgment and meaning that we've added on top of them. You know, it's, it's universal. Self-expression is universal. Um, so... When I met you, I met you as a visual artist. <laughs> so you came to interview to be, I think you were our second artist in residence ever um, and sat down with Tanner and myself to interview. And we talked mostly of visual art and you kind of mentioned you were a musician as well. Um, but how, how did that visual component start entering into your artistic world? 
yeah, my sister is a visual artist. She's she's in the middle. I mean, she does everything too. Uh, but uh, she was my brother and I really went the music direction, and she was more visual. And my parents put us in, you know, art summer camps at the local community college and stuff. So there was definitely like I I would do some things like that. But my main thing was music, and um, one of the things that when I think about like the first time I really got into painting, because that was the first sort of visual art that I did, it was really influenced by um, a Chihuly exhibit that I saw in Boston. And it was incredible, you know, because his, his sculptural work is just otherworldly. It's completely, you know, it's that it's glass is just like a whole other layer of incomprehensibility, right? Like impossibility of creation. But what really stuck with me from that was they, there was a documentary about him and about his work called In the Hot Shop. The Hot Shop is the glass studio. And they showed footage of him painting, sketching out these forms uh, before they went to make them. And he used acrylic paint in these squeeze bottles. And it was very Jackson Pollock. Like it was very like he would, you know, he would take some colors and he would squeeze things out. And it had so much motion and energy to it that I was like, oh, well, I can squeeze paint. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay, if he does it, like, I can do it. And I literally, like, went home and bought a bunch of paints and started doing that. And for me, like, you know, now that I've gone into drawing and, you know, I use gold leaf and sometimes I'll, you know, do weird sculptural nonsense. Like, what what's really interesting to me is that that same idea that this visual thing is a record of that idea that was in his head, right? It's not, he didn't want, you know, it, it, the intention wasn't to create a painting. The intention was to describe something that he saw. And for me, that's, I think, why I end up doing so much different kind of stuff, because I'll have an idea in my head, and then I'll think, oh, maybe, maybe this is actually like hard pen lines and not watercolor, like whatever it is. So, it's not so much like any particular visual medium that interests me. It's that like, oh, when you look at this, it feel like you feel a certain way or you think a certain thing or this represents that other thing. And that's like super pretentious to say, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I also, you know, like each, each medium is a different language and sometimes things sound better in Spanish than English, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. You're kind of final project as an artist in residence included getting a grand piano through the door of the gallery of sight. A lot of piano problems you've brought into my world, but um, getting a beautiful grand piano into the gallery at Side Street, as well as a visual art component and a live performance. Um, so there is, you know, that evidence of you kind of braiding these forms together um, and and I'm kind of wondering about the motivation for that and if that's now always necessary for you, you know, <laughs> to like complete a, a thought about this thing, uh, to use these multiple mediums um, or kind of catch as catch can with, with how you're combining these things. Yeah, that's really annoying to me because <laughs> I just have too many ideas. Um, so that that residency project was the Goldberg Variations, which is one of these sort of big, like, landmark 
piano or keyboard pieces by J.S. Bach at the time it was played on harpsichord or clavichord. Um, and I really wanted to learn the Goldberg Variations partially because of ego, um, but, but also just because um, they were kind of one of the big pieces that uh, were in the career of Glenn Gould, who's one of my piano heroes. And as I was thinking about the Goldberg Variations, that piece is an aria, right, a short piece, 30 variations on that aria, and then the aria again at the end. And to me, again, the thought process, right, that was what was most interesting to me, because Bach was a church musician. He, he played organ, you know, at his church, and he taught students, right? Like, he wasn't, he wasn't even famous until Mendelssohn sort of rediscovered his work. It's called the Bach Revival. And so I'm thinking about like, like, I mean, this, he's a complete psycho, just like writing 30 of these variations and like, you know, breaking them down into groups and halves and he's going in all of this mathematical stuff. And I'm thinking like, what is, what is it like in that mind when you're doing this? You know, this was a guy who also wrote a, a, P, an, a prelude and fugue in every single key twice <laughs> to prove that that style of tuning a piano was the best way of doing it. Like this is, this is his mind. Like he's just a complete, you know, just phenomenon. And so when I was thinking about that, I was like, well, how would other people describe this? You know, how would, how would a visual artist describe this? How would an architect describe this? Architecture is one of, the, one of the themes that we had talked about at EYSO for one season. So I became obsessed with music and architecture and thinking about them like each other. And so I was looking at like, Palladio diagrams and like things like that. And I was like, well, what, what is theme and variations in other media? And that's how that exhibit came about because I was crazy enough to think like, oh, I can learn this music and make an entire show. I, I like narrowly pulled it off. Um, but again, it, like, it wasn't even like, I, oh, I wanna try making some paintings or some drawings. I was thinking through stuff, the way that you like write notes in your notebook. It was me sitting alone at art space with my one light making millions of tiny drawings like, you know, every night. And I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about it. And to me, that was practicing the music as well, you know? Your, <laughs> I can picture the gallery now and there are these not large works. What was kind of the size of? I mean, the there were a few big ones. And the large right, ones right. were composed of, you know, maybe five by seven max, right. like series of small things. Right. So, the, you know, they were smaller, but populated the gallery walls um, completely. And um, with that music playing, I can absolutely see the connection to thought process um, and feel completely intimidated by the cleanness of that <laughs> thought process. My thought process is different directions and messy. And, um, it, you know, I didn't know part of what you just said, you know, about your creation of that exhibit and really focusing on thought process, um, the methodology and apparent clarity and cleanness of that method methodology seems so abstract isn't the right word 
Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say, seems like bullshit. <laughs> you, you know, like, and I, yeah. I say that in the most loving way, like yeah. coming from my brain, that that would be no reflection of my brain. And of course, we don't have the same brain, but uh, that's a presentation of thought that um, I find beautiful and intimidating at the same time. Mm. Yeah, a lot of my stuff is super minimal. And I think part of that is uh, because I'm such a perfectionist or not so much anymore, but I definitely grew up being a perfectionist. And I think, you know, one of one of the things, I, I always called it distillation. That was the word that was in my head um, as I was making those things and as I do things a lot now, is like, what's what's the simplest possible way of expressing this thing? What's the most essential nature of this thing? Um, and I remember when I was making it, I had this Marina Abramovich quote on my, on my wall because the, her MoMA documentary had, I had recently watched it. You know, she spends eight hours a day sitting in a chair. She said, the, the hardest thing to do is something which is close to nothing. <laughs> and that's like, it's just so, um, I really enjoy making people uncomfortable. <laughs> and so that totally like slotted into my thing is that, I really like it when people don't get it. And I really like it when people like have to work to see, you know, like, you know, how are, how are all of these 12 squares different? Like, what is this thing? And you have to get close and you have to look in there because again, that's a thought process, right? Mm -hmm. That's provoking the audience to think or behave differently than they may have expected to. And so I think you're probably right that my thoughts aren't always that clear as you would see like my tiny squares with three lines on them, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it definitely, it definitely sort of in this, you know, Mondrian kind of way, like I, I try to think about like, what's the, what's the simplest way to get across this message? What's the, what's the quietest, the fewest words that I can use so that you have to do some work on your end. And in that way, you're drawn in to that process. That's why I am a, a fan of your work. And then even including those variations that we mentioned, we've talked about, you and I have talked about Philip Glass before. I love a freaking payoff, man, right? I love a long, um, modest, apparently, series of moments, whether that be musically or visually or movement, right? With just some dynamic payoff <laughs> whatever that means that doesn't mean crescendo right um and i think the the payoff comes with realization in the viewer's mind as well you know maybe that's just the click of i'm feeling this maybe it is a crescendo right M maybe it is something bigger or quieter whatever the case may be but in minimal minimalism and abstraction in these uh layers of music and repetition I think those payoffs are so freaking juicy. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely like, I don't see like if whatever I'm doing, I don't see it as my job to make you think what I'm thinking. I just want to like mess you up a little bit. <laughs> like, like I, I don't think it's necessary that you get the full story of how I think about this piece of music or this, this piece of art. And actually um, Daniel Brubaker, the Elgin composer who died in the last, oh gosh, six or seven years ago. Um, I was doing a masterclass with him once and he said, composers can be 
convinced. Like if you, if you, a composer gives you a piece of music and you play it a way that they never imagined, hmm. they can be convinced that that's the right way. Ira Gershwin said that about Ella Fitzgerald. He said, I did not know how good our songs were until she sang them, <laughs> you know? Like they're, the audience, the performer, the interpreter, they play a part in that. And so it's not necessary for me to heavy handedly title the piece or, you know, program note it to hell. Like what I'm doing is inviting you in to have whatever experience you're going to have. And if that was boredom, like that's okay. <laughs> you know, it's just like, this is what I have to offer you. Like do whatever you want with it, you know, which hopefully is a it can be a healthy outlook for an artist as well, because at the end of the day, regardless of the program notes and the titles and all of that, which I totally agree with, um, I don't like to look at a program till after a show sometimes mm. or a title until after the show. So it doesn't jade or inform my perspective. Um, but knowing that you don't, once it's out, you have no control over that, right? Because I might be coming in, you know, how many times have you seen a movie and then watched it again and be like, I hated this the first time. And now, <laughs> you know, I'm coming in with my day, my history, my weight of whatever, my lightness of whatever, my perspective, my mood, all of that sort of thing. And then putting it on your art um, and allowing those two to have a conversation and see what my point of view is going to be about this art, whether you have program noted it or not. Right. And like, you know, 70% of people aren't going to read whatever you put up mm -hmm. there, you know? So like, first of all, forget that you have any control in that situation. I talked about this with Kate Roberts too, when she was doing her um, One True Line show that, you know, that the experience of that show in which there was sort of a progression, there was a continuous line all throughout the gallery. Like it was, it was very much, you know, this is how you experience it. And we were talking about, like, no matter how much you do that, like, someone's going to come in and walk in the wrong order. The like, <laughs> right? Right. right. right? <laughs> so, like, even, you know, in a, in a way, again, the preciousness, right? This is your baby. Like, this is your thing that you, I did the Goldberg Variations for a year, you know, which was not nearly enough time. Hmm. Um, and then I was like, here, like, take this, people I've never met. You know, it's like, it's not yours anymore. It's not yours. Like it was, it was not yours the moment that another eyeball looked at it, which might've been six months ago, you know, when your husband came and looked at it, right? <laughs> like that kind of thing. It's, it's not my job to, uh, to make you think or feel a certain thing. I'm just glad that you thought or felt at all. Your process for putting that or any of the work you create together is the is the process put it on the page and it's done is the process trial and error um is the process make a mess and then clean it up you, you know how how are you creating things these days yeah these days not creating <laughs> or those days much. or whatever <laughs> whatever days you want to talk about <laughs> if anyone is listening who has not made anything since march of 2020 i feel for you and that's okay <laughs> that's okay um, I have made a few things, put on a concert, that type of thing. Um, I, let's see, like definitely with visual art, um, uh, I think with everything visual, um, it's, it kind of has a performative aspect for me and that, you know, just like I was, as I was describing with Chihuly, um, that 
that visual piece is not just a visual piece. It's not just that painting. It's also a record of everything that happened while you were painting it, right? And so I kind of, I, you know, because I've taken some pressure off myself, I let myself not make stuff for a long time until I'm like, okay, I have a thought that's ready to go down, right? And that's a specific moment. You know, I'm not a person because, because I don't focus a lot on visual art. I'm not a person who goes in and workshops every single day. That's a different discipline that I choose not to have. Um, when it's that moment, it's like, okay, it's a painting day. And I'll go in and paint. And if something didn't work, it's gone. It's trash, right? <laughs> because that moment of making that thing is over. Um, if something was good, I'll, you know, it'll be done. You know, I don't go back and edit it because that's the, like, that was the time when I made that thing, you know, whatever it looks like, that was what happened. <laughs> and uh, I do occasionally remake things, I guess, um, when I have an idea that I'm like, okay, this could have been better executed. But, but even so, it's, it's definitely um, like kind of a one and done situation. Like I, I don't have any patience for like oil painting three weeks at a time. That's not my, my jam. I am very similar in that respect. And I don't, I know you don't need me to tell you this, but your process is okay. You <laughs> yes. know what I mean? Like I, at whoever <laughs> needs to hear that, yeah. whatever your process is, as long as you aren't hurting someone, your process is okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, for many years felt a lot of insecurities around preferring to choreograph in the room on people versus coming in with my notebook of notes and knowing exactly where I was going to go. Um, I felt like that made me seem unprepared uh, because that's what I had seen other, I have my choreography, I'm going to put it on you, here we go. And I don't like to work that way. Mm -hmm. And um, I still sometimes, if I'm in a room of teenagers and they want choreography now and they're standing there with their arms crossed and their teenager <laughs> eyes looking at me, I'm like, I'm sorry, I, w I have worked on this, you know, because I've worked right. on it in my way, which is in my brain and my research and thinking and listening to the music and this, that, and the other thing. Um, but there's so many variations on process and an artist can even change from thing to thing or medium to medium or year to year. Um, and they're all okay if they're getting you to the creative process that you want to feel and experience. And yeah, again, it's one of those situations that it's like, it's so um, performance centered. Hmm. It's like, this is how a professional choreographer yeah. works, yep. you know, where it's like, if we train children from the first day that they learn their instrument or whatever it is, that it's the most important thing to look a certain way, they will never find out that their process is different from that. And then I know for certain there's someone out there who says, oh, well, this is, this is what real artists do. They do this every day. They use these kinds of paints. They do this thing. They show X, Y, Z number of times a year. Like that's just someone else's standard that is not how your brain works because every brain is different. Yeah. This makes me think of of the work you are doing now with Still Life and I, I maybe it's been how long has it been open? 
opened in July of 2020. In July of 2020. So, so about we're, nine months. We're getting close to a year. And I feel like for most of those nine months after I stopped being sick, um, I've come in at least once a week and, yeah. and taken workshops and um, really fell in love with the work you were doing when you did a few sound baths. Um, here at Side Street, I think maybe through Going Dutch was one of a few years right. ago was one of the first time uh, times that you did do that. And so I, I can see a really clear trajectory of how the artistic work you're creating talks to um, the still life work you're creating and, and doing. So tell us what it is you do at Still Life and and. Um, what what we get out of going there and spending time with yeah you. almost a year and i'm finally figuring it out um <laughs> that's not true <laughs> never figured out <laughs> so still still life is elgin's first uh meditation center most i mean meditation like everyone has heard of it by now in the pandemic most of us don't really know what it is or have tried it and been like eh, that doesn't work for me um but meditation is often associated primarily with buddhism and hinduism and so even though it's becoming more popular, there aren't many secular places to practice it. And that's what still life is. Still life is just a place to come and experience awareness and relaxation and tranquility. I always tell people meditation is just not doing other things. That's all it is. <laughs> and even though we all have ideas of how you should sit and what kind of person you should be and chanting and all of these things, Meditation is just not doing those other things and taking some time to be with yourself and learning more about yourself in that process. And so um, like, I'm glad that it, it makes sense that that's what I do because I do often think, you know, because there are so many um, preconceptions and misconceptions about what, what meditation is and what type of things I should offer, I always come back to what I think about with art is that I want, I want to make you think something. I want to make you think a little bit differently than you're currently thinking. And that's what meditation does for us, is that by not doing all those other things, not inputting more stimulus, taking some time away from activity, um, it can be incredibly uncomfortable because we never do that, right, in day-to-day -day life. But then you actually get to see how you work. Oh, this is the way my thoughts go when I let them go, right? This is the, how busy my mind is when I don't have three different screens going at once, right? And this is just a, another way of learning about yourself, just as art is a way of learning about yourself, right? Just as letting things out is a way of learning about yourself, looking inside is also a way of learning about yourself. And so at Still Life, we have guided meditation classes, workshops in related contemplative practices, um, one day we'll have, you know, other teachers and big groups and talks and so forth when that's safe to do so. Um, but I really think of it as um, a sanctuary, just a place where um, all that's necessary is to be there. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there aren't many places that we have that are like that. Why does that exploration of my own inner workings matter why why should i do that why is it important is it um because it affects everything else that you do and i think that a lot of us we already know and we already talk to ourselves this way 
I don't know why I'm like that. I don't know why I keep making that same mistake. Oh my God, that happened again. That same pattern, that same bad relationship. I took the wrong job again. I ruined that friendship. All of those things, and they're not always bad. <laughs> that was like a, a very <laughs> negative string. But we, we are constantly reacting to things without knowing why that that is our reaction. You know, especially being very close physically to our household in the last year. I mean, I remember there was a news story about like as soon as the Wuhan lockdown ended, like two dozen couples filed for divorce. Like that was the first place they left their houses, right? All of the time we are reacting to these things, to other people. We're picking up our phones without knowing why. Oh my God, I just spent 30 minutes scrolling through Instagram, right? All of these things are decipherable. We can understand where that's coming from. But in order to do that, we have to stop doing them for a second and see where is that coming from? All of those habits are reinforced by the ways that we think about them. All of those reactions come from something within you that says, okay, this is how you relate to that other person or to traffic or to you know frustration, bad customer service, whatever it is. All that's coming from within. And I think that that's the part that's really scary for people is that when you can say, oh, that you know barista or whatever just ruined my drink, they were incompetent, they didn't listen, whatever the stuff, like that's a safe thing to do because the problem is outside of you. I'm not saying the problem is within you, but I'm saying that there are things that you can change and understand better if you're willing to say, what might be going on inside that leads me to this reaction? And this is like, there's a lot of very unfortunate new agey, you know, rhetoric around like, oh, you know, people are, you know, oppressed peoples are, you know, I don't even want to say it, but you know, like there's a lot of victim blaming in that mentality of you can take control over those things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that like injustice is a problem that people bring upon themselves through their attitude. What I'm saying is that in your everyday life, if you think back to the last, just this morning, there was something that you reacted to or flew off the handle about or that got you down that you didn't really understand why that happened. And there is an opportunity and a method to help you understand that. I think that what you're talking about has, as you mentioned, has really hit home for me personally in the last year. And I think about the beginning of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the in the last year and how I was at a protest at one point and was aware that if it were any other year, I would have been at a dance recital right now because mm. every year I have dance recitals right. during that time of year and that everything going on in the world had forced time and space for me not to just read about this news, care very much about it, send some money somewhere, maybe share a few articles, and then go to my dance recitals, mm -hmm. but um, feel the significance and feel compelled to be in the moment, in the space, um, physically in support 
of this moment. Um, and I think that that in particular really resonates with me when I am in your space. I, it, it took a pandemic for me to take real time to consider something like the Black Lives Matter movement that I don't have to deal with every day. I can turn that part of my brain off. Mm -hmm. I can focus on other things. Um, and that is part of my privilege and, and that I can turn that light switch off and go to a dance recital or watch a TV show and not have to consider um, my skin color walking through the world just mm -hmm. to put it at, you know, the, the basis level of consideration. And so maintaining that availability for um, the important things in the world around me, as well as those that I do have an immediate responsibility to, as well as some form of self-awareness of my position in all of these places, I have found that my time, even in a half an hour of sitting, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. and not doing anything else except being there, um, has helped me maintain some version of Focus isn't the right word because I don't know if I'm ever focused, <laughs> but awareness, perspective, perspective, maybe. Yeah. yes, and um, space, you know, keeping space for what is more important than the, that dance recital. Yeah. Not that I can change my job. That's my job. I have to go to do that to get paid, but how I can find the balance on uh, involvement and activism and voice and support while paying my bills and uh, staying involved in other parts of my life as well. Yeah. I think that like the word that stuck with me from what you just said is availability and space. And um, it reminded me of something that um, Courtney Carver, who is a minimalist author, she went through a big health crisis, completely changed her life, quit the job that was killing her. She um, she uh, writes a blog called Be More With Less. She says, and it sounds very glib, but she says, if you don't have time for the things that matter, just stop doing the things that don't matter, right? And that sounds, it, it sounds very flippant, right? But if we are willing to stop reacting for a second and say, how much of my time do I spend doing things that don't matter? Like we realize that it's a lot. You know, and, and how much, not just time, but mental energy. Um, and I'm, this is one of my big things is that I love having TV on in the background. It doesn't give me space for, for my brain to think, right? It takes up that space. And so that's one of the like beautiful, uncomfortable things about just being in silence, for instance, is that you're like, oh, this is what my brain does when I leave it alone, right? And oh, maybe this is why I'm so uncomfortable in this other situation that's similar to this, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that like there are, as you said, so many other important things that we could occupy our, our minds with, but we just never give them the chance. And this is why I always like to say, you're, when you're meditating, when you're practicing mindfulness, you're giving yourself the gift, the gift of not doing other things. I mean, how many times have we said, oh, I don't have time to do anything? I don't, have t I don't have free time, right? Maybe that was not the case for the last year, right? But now we're forced to have free time. And I have clients who are saying, for the very first time, I'm wondering, why did I constantly take all those jobs? 
you know, for the very first time in my life, what was it about that thing that kept weighing on me? That's because we have that space. And it's not wrong to admit that you've grown or gained something from the pandemic. Like there was a great New York Times article about people who are feeling really immense relief from social anxiety, right? It's a tragic time, but many things can be true at once. And this forced moment of reimagining what your daily life could be, that's what's led a lot of people to mindfulness or meditation or drinking or self-harm, you know, like things like that. There are always, again, not to diminish the illness that is addiction, but there are always many, many things and many possible outcomes from these situations. I know that early on, even thinking about this before, you know, I started working with you and whatever, the idea of it being indulgent. Yes. Right. When there are more important things to think about or responsibilities I have on my list that I need to get to for other people or my business or whatever. Um, why isn't it indulgent <laughs> or, or is it? Oh my gosh, there's so many layers there. So one of the phrases that I learned over the last year is um, internalized capitalism, hmm. which is that if you're not, and unfortunately there has been a huge increase in hustle culture, right? You should be using this time to start your business. You should be, you know, like all of this stuff, whatever. That's just, that's just the belief ingrained in you that your time is only worth how much it costs or pays you, right? So it's not, <laughs> so first of all, there is that productivity myth, right? That my, that I am only valuable so much as I can put out into the world, whether that's, you know, my time in exchange for money, whether that's doing X, Y, Z, you know, working on the business, that type of thing. So there's that, which is a barrier to sort of taking time off, so to speak, right, to take care of yourself. You said, why is it not indulgent? I think one of the things that comes to mind, too, is um, some words from Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist and a meditation teacher. Um, he says, think about it this way. You're always meditating on something. You're meditation just means contemplating or wondering. That's all it is. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to describe, you know, herit the heritage of meditation and the tradition it comes from. But fundamentally, all it is is awareness. You're always meditating on something. It could be your frustration. It could be your job. It could be a story that you tell yourself that's making you angry. It could be anything that you are thinking about right now. So you're already doing it. Why not be more intentional about what you're directing your attention toward? And this is, Sam Harris has an app called Waking Up. This is really his, sort of his big thing is that your, your attention itself is precious. And when I, for instance, split it up among the TV background noise and whatever I'm doing and answering the text message, like that's, that's your real capital is your attention. One of the big concepts of, um, of mindfulness is called beginner's mind. It's the attitude of seeing things as if for the first time. And when we're a beginner at something, we're very cautious, right? You're driving to a new place. You are, you know, you've got a sharp new knife. You're worried about cutting yourself, right? But beginner's mind is also what I call vacation eyes. You're in a new place for the first time 
and you realize inherently you might never be here again. You might never see this thing again. And suddenly all of your senses turn on. What would it be like to live in a way that you can do that when you want to or at all times, right? I don't think that's indulgent. I don't think it's indulgent to want a better way of experiencing things. And that's not to say that, <laughs> that's not to say that like meditation is gonna fix your problems or anything like that. What it does is change the way that you notice things and react to things and just get to know yourself better. I think that because of internalized capitalism and you know productivity and efficiency and so forth, everything, most of the ways that we think about ourselves are how, how am I valuable to that thing out there? How am I valuable to this company, to this family, to the society, whatever it is. But you also have value within yourself where you can say, how am I spending my own energy? How am I appreciating this body in this time? And being able to go inward, you already live here. <laughs> like you may as well take a look around, right? You're already, you've been living with this mind for decades. You may as well know what it's doing up there. I, I love to work. I, <laughs> You know, I, I love side street. I love being here. I love planning new things. I love teaching all of my other jobs. I, I really love to work and I get great satisfaction and have worked hard to be my own boss. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I love to work because on a day when I don't love to work, I can take some time, Yes, you know? Um, but I do also think that when you love to work, the separation between Aaron's life and work life is super blurry, you mm. know, and then you add that it's in the arts in there and I love the arts and I love to work, <laughs> you know? And so when I go visit a gallery, I'm also thinking about the structures and administration and marketing of the gallery as well as spending time with the art, right? And so I bring that up because of that word indulgent, like, my I love all my jobs they're fun to me so taking time away from that seems silly but of course um it has become and is very important Tanner and I all, all often have to leave the state right to take time off is that yeah. why I always see road trip photos <laughs> yes this is the only way I can't be at size three right no <laughs> offense Elgin but uh sometimes we have to go thousands of miles away to take a day off so to speak um but I, I bring that up because I think it, the, the meditative moments I worked on or workshops or whatever I experienced before working with you and what I've experienced since working with you um, are so different and have communicated with me in, in the way I work in a much better way in that I come from... Uh, there's a lot of competitor inside of me and I know I've you know I've mentioned this before early attempts at meditating or even if I take a yoga class I am thinking about performance I am thinking Definitely. about growing my technique right and becoming better stronger the best one in the room whatever it is and um always thought that I was failing at meditation because I couldn't quiet everything that I felt I was expected to quiet to be a part of this group and so kind of one thing I feel like your sound baths are a gateway drug <laughs> because they do connect with that. I'm a, I'm a TV on in the background kind of person as well. And so having something 
to focus my attention on in the beautiful sounds coming out of the instruments or whatever is being used for the sound bath was really helpful to me as an entry point. Um, of course, being with someone I already knew and trusted helped me to be like, okay, if I have a question, I will be comfortable asking it and not like, okay, I need to go find this out by myself. And then those allowed me to be comfortable in a space of taking those 20 minutes or 30 minutes to just be in my own brain and acknowledging that complete silence in my own brain is not the goal. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and I didn't know that beforehand. Um, not that, uh, you know, I'd done extensive research or anything, but I just, you know, I, I say all that because I have breathed better. I have um, invited compassion in mm. more than I used to. Um, and that is kind of the space that practicing at still life has started to create, you know, in these few months for me and that I can literally breathe better, which was super important having gone through having COVID. Right. Um, and then philosophically and emotionally and mentally, I now can find space for new information or uh, con greater concern for a human in front of me or near me um, and or myself if necessary. And, you know, I'm rambling, but it, I just say all this because I feel like like a white walled gallery, something like meditation can be intimidating to approach. You feel like you have to go in knowing what you don't know. Oh my gosh. Yet. Yes. Yes. 100%. It's like how you have to be in shape before you join a gym. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Right. And like, first of all, I appreciate you saying that because that's really one of the things that's a big sticking point for me is that the way that meditation is marketed. And you'll see, I use that phrase all the time on still life, social media, the way that meditation is marketed is that we think we're taught, we're told that meditation is a solution to a problem. And the problem is you. <laughs> and the solution is something you've never done before, yeah. right? Yeah. So oftentimes you hear things, clear your mind, let go of your thoughts, just relax, whatever those things are. Those are very unthoughtful words to use. And this goes back to my training in EYSO, right? What is the precise exact word that makes sense right here? And so you guys don't know it during classes, during those silences, I'm like figuring out the perfect sentence, right? For the next cue, like that kind of thing. And so meditation, we think is something that we have to achieve, right? There's a reason it's called practice. And practice is a really interesting word from an arts perspective because typically practice means preparation for a concert or preparation for an event, right? But Shunryu Suzuki, who is one of the Japanese teachers who really brought Zen to the, to the US, he said, waves are the practice of water. And that every time I think about it, because <laughs> I read this at the San Francisco Zen Center, which he founded sitting on the beach, it slapped me across <laughs> the face. And every time he reaches across like the afterlife to come tell me this, <laughs> right? The waves, the, the water doesn't try to be better. The water doesn't set an intention to create waves, right? The water doesn't need to wave. 
It's what naturally arises from being water. And I think about something that Isaac Asimov said. He said, I write because of the same reason that I breathe. If I didn't, I would die. It's the arts are something, this creativity and this, this mental mode, this practice, it comes from somewhere, but it also comes from nowhere, right? It's a thing that you have to do because that's simply what you do. And I think everybody, if we're honest with ourselves, everybody has something like this. I don't know why I love knitting, but I do. I don't know why this is my favorite thing, but I do. Why did I adopt another dog, right? <laughs> there is something that you do that you would not be yourself without. And this is what, <laughs> this is what meditation is. It's simply letting yourself be whoever that person is, giving yourself a break, the gift of not crowding yourself in with other stuff. It's saying, who is this person when I'm just being here, when I don't have to be working, when I don't have to be doing something else, producing, whatever it is, who is this person and what are the things that, that come out of them? Waves are, the, waves are the water's practice. It's just something that naturally arises from it. And so that might have made it more intimidating. I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but meditation is not, a, it, not something that you ever master. I always tell this to people in my introductory workshop. You will never, ever, ever be quote unquote better at meditating because the purpose is not to be good at being quiet, <laughs> right? The purpose is not to be comfortable sitting cross-legged on the floor. The purpose is just to be whatever you are being right now and to notice who and what that is. And I think that this is why it's so, it dovetails so perfectly with the creative arts, which is everything, right? Entrepreneurship is a creative art. You're creating something out of nothing, right? It, it works so perfectly with the creative arts because what you're saying is what is inside me? What is it that might want to come out? What is it that I can learn better about what's inside me? And in addition to being able to breathe better and sit comfortably on the floor or in a chair, we have chairs, it's fine. Like <laughs> in addition to all those things, there is so much insight that doesn't require reading books or you know, doing all of this thinking, thinking, thinking work. Sometimes when you just give yourself a break from all those other things that are, that are clouding your vision, it's much easier to see clearly. I find that it is, you know, difficult to maintain stillness in my brain, but my body is never more still than when I'm I'm a fidgety person. I'm always doing stuff. I've just, I am in motion and I will go the 20 minutes or whatever. And I haven't moved my hands. I haven't, you know, I haven't scratched an itch, whatever in ways that I am not capable of in any other time or space in my day, maybe even at night. Um, that's one of the um, logistical things. That's one of the reasons that I really wanted still life to be a, a, an actual physical space, which was a terrifying and probably bad decision to do like in July during the <laughs> pandemic, right? But like there is really something to having a space where you go. It's like a church, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you walk into a church, you know, you know what you're there for. When you walk into a hospital, you know what you're there for. When you come to still life, it's not like any other meditation that you've done because you're in a new place. 
And your body knows that. It's just like your body acts differently when you have a formal gown on, right? It's, it's true in any other situation. And that's why, to me, and especially now, right, we're all becoming aware of how physical spaces have such an effect on us. Yeah, absolutely. I went, when we did a few of your workshops here, right? This is at side street. This is not a space that I'm going to chill out totally because <laughs> totally. I'm going to hear the trains or someone's going to come in the door or, and that's my responsibility. Right. So it, it, it does add that lovely extra layer. And I mean, I often come back to when you are leading our meditations, kind of simply let it go. And Elsa or whoever will sing in my head. You know, I know this song through the little kids I teach of and, course. and let it go will come back and then be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Or I am here, here I am. Right. Mm -hmm. And I find that kind of, especially those three sentences are all things you have said at given points um but also I find that those three sentences kind of rotate based on where I am in a day like here I am or I am here are two very different things as well as let it go that is a totally different um area of my brain that is working and um it, it is just endlessly interesting to me to under to think about what pops up in those times to think about what I think is silly that popped up and then my brain goes, let it go. Um, and to think about when I'm, I consider myself way less than successful, it, it, you know, mm -hmm. e even having, um, taken a moment for myself, but to be like, okay, that, what was I doing? Like, was I there? What was, you know, I'll be like, what the heck did Rachel just say? I don't know. Where's my brain, you know? And f I find that conversation interesting as well. One of the, again, annoying things about meditating, which I hate even say, I hate even saying meditating because it's just like your life, like just the annoying thing mm. about your life, right? <laughs> I mean, we all have many annoying things about our lives. <laughs> just the one, just, just the one. <laughs> that one thing. Um, again, because of the way that we are, are told that meditation works, we expect to sit down, do something we've never done before, for 20 minutes and then leave feeling perfect, like blissful, at ease, peaceful, tranquil, chill, whatever it is. Meditation is not a spa day, <laughs> right? It certainly feels that way a lot of the time. And a sound bath where you're just lying on the floor and drifting through this nice ambient music, like that, the purpose of that um, event is, is to relax. But meditation is just awareness. And sometimes I will sit down to meditate and a thought comes up and that's what I'm thinking about for weeks. You know, it's something that needed to be known. And I'm just like, wow, that, you know, changed everything I'm doing for the rest of the day. Right. And that can be scary because we just, we don't want to do that. We want to avoid things, right? We want a thing where we just sit down and feel better. But, you know, that's, it's like eating chocolate cake for dinner, right? There's something better to be had out there. And so I'm glad to hear that some of these, these phrases that I, that I like to use kind of stick with you because even though meditation can seem very simple, just sitting there, just not doing other things, it's so rich and so, so fruitful. 
And you, you might do the exact same thing every day. The Zen practice is sitting in silence for two hours in the morning, like nothing. Uh, Dogen Senji, who wrote sort of the rules of this practice, which is called Zazen, it means uh, just sitting, shikantaza, just sitting. He says, don't even think of it. You're not meditating. You're not doing anything. Just sit there, you know? And it's like, it's so simple. But then you, if you sit there in silence for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, you might be crying about something by the end, right? Like, this is what your body wants to do when you give it the space to do that. Rachel, I think you and I could <laughs> talk about all of this and so much more for hours on end. And I don't know if anyone would ever want to listen to that, but <laughs> it's just us. It's like, well, this podcast will have two invested listeners. <laughs> Um, but I mean, there's still so many more other things I would love to get you get to. So we'll have to talk again sometime soon. Um, but I wanted to make sure that our community really understood where, where still life it, kind of the, the laurels it was resting on and all the work you've done previous to that. And then kind of what it can do for our community now. And especially as we move out of the pandemic and are able to be around each other even more so yeah still life is at 25 south grove it's the building that Tum Tum tai is in hopefully they come back soon I, I love them so much and we have 30 minute guided meditation classes sound baths workshops breath work one-on-one -on -one instruction mindful coaching um you know people come in and have their birthday parties for a sound bath you know like there's i mean I'm here for you. So <laughs> I want to come and help you uh, be able to withstand the remainder of the lockdown. <laughs> so come in person or online. I'd love to help you out. And she's on the fifth floor of that building. You can just That's walk right. in and there's an elevator there and take it up to that fifth floor. Mm -hmm. um, Rachel, I'm so glad our paths crossed whenever, however many years ago that was and that they continue to cross. I'm grateful for you and your work and what you're doing for all of us right now. Um, and I truly value our friendship and your artistry and all that. And eye contact compliments galore for you. Thank you <laughs> Thank for spending you. time. Thanks for uh, not kicking me out, <laughs> letting me keep doing whatever crazy ideas I have here. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, Stilllifemeditation.net Net, if you need to hunt Rachel down. Also, what's your website? They can check out your work and your blog and all of that. R-E-M-A-L-E-Y.com. And that's linked at stilllifemeditation.net. Just click on the about and you'll be able to find me personally. If any of these bits uh, felt interesting to you, hunt her down. There's lots of interesting content and beautiful work. Um, again, I am Erin Rayberg, and we are Side Street Studio Arts. You can find us on all the social medias, this connected podcast, like, rate, all the stuff so we can keep going. Um, we're coming out weekly with different interviews from all of, all of the directors around this joint, and there's so many of us um, all talking to different people about different things. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Be well, be safe out there, and stay connected. Connected is a Side Street Studio Arts production. Music by Tanner Nolan. Produced by Nick Mataragas. To find out more about Connected and all the great things Side Street Studio Arts offers, 
please visit sidestreetstudioarts.org.